you know, either we sacrifice ourselves for others or mm. we sacrifice others for the self. You know, they're, they're the only two choices. Mm. One's the choice of pride, the other's the choice of humility, which manifests itself in love. And Jesus Christ shows us that, and Chesterton, the everlasting man, shows us that. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, and today we're joined again by a good friend and a former colleague, uh, Joseph Pierce. Welcome to the show. It's good to be back. So we've actually already done one show, and listeners, if they're interested, may want to go look, uh, check out this show, uh, just a general introduction to G.K. Chesterton, and especially looking at his role in uh, helping so many kind of really find a home in the Catholic faith or in, the, in even the broader Christian tradition, right? So Chesterton and conversion. But today we really want to look at one particular book. Chesterton's The Everlasting Man. Now, Chesterton's Everlasting Man is perhaps most uh, famously known, right, as the book that C.S. Lewis described as baptizing his intellect uh, when he read it in, in, in the 20s, a couple of years before his own conversion, uh, so I'd just love to, you know, what is it about uh, Chesterton's everlasting man uh, that kind of is uh, so important, uh, maybe in the life of Lewis? And uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the everlasting man itself, you know, if you if you were to ask what what's, what's the most important or the best book that Chesterton ever wrote, it would certainly be a major contender. Okay. You know, you yes. could say The Everlasting Man, you could say you could say Orthodox, you could say Francis of Assisi, uh, you could say the book on Thomas Aquinas, mm-hmm. maybe one of his novels, maybe Lepanto, some of his poetry, and of course he's a great essayist. But um, as regards his impact on C.S. Lewis, um, he, he basically considered it a major milestone upon his uh, path to conversion to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, um, so some, so somewhere between an atheist and a deist yeah. when he read it. Uh, but you know, he, he, he might have begrudgingly come to the acceptance of God's existence, but it was a, a sadistic, pathological God mm-hmm. uh, whom he hated. <laughs> uh, God is this vivisectionist in the sky that got some sort of sadistic pleasure in inflicting pain. So certainly a long, long way from the embrace of Jesus Christ. Christ. Um, but he read the, the Everlasting Man and he said, I saw the Christian outline of history laid out before me for the first time that made sense. Yeah. And again, the word outline of history there, because Chester's book was written as a repost, as a response to um, to H.G. Wells's book, The Outline of History. And perhaps in, in order to set the scene, we should say something about that. Okay. So this was a this was an international bestseller. H.G. Wells, who was not a trained historian, but you know, it was an act of labor of love and enthusiasm, uh, wrote this book, The Outline of History. Uh, it sold all over the world, a popular success. H, uh, Hilaire Belloc, who was a trained historian, uh, was uh, outraged, and okay. he wrote a book called uh, A Companion mm-hmm. to H.G. Wells' Outline of History. H.G. Wells was outraged by Belloc's response and wrote a book called Mr. Belloc Objects, Mm-hmm. to which Belloc responded with uh, another book called Mr. Belloc Still Objects. <laughs> so they were fighting. Belloc claimed to have written 100,000 words in refutation of, of Wells' book, The Outline of History. But the difference, is, you know, so that, that, this was the backdrop to Chester taking up the cudgels, so now, to speak. Maybe for readers who aren't familiar, who is H.G. Wells? And maybe what was the kind of, what was the key outline of the outline of history, this book that was so popular? Yeah, great question. Thanks for asking, because I was going to overlook that. <laughs> uh, yeah, first of all, Wells is probably best known as a science fiction novelist. Okay. Um, so he, he wrote you know, quite a few uh, well-known science fiction um, uh, books. That's what made his name. But this was an effort to write a history of the world from a perspective of a progressive, materialistic, determinist approach. So, for instance, uh, there's much more on the Assyrian Empire in the outline of history than on the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of, it's almost as if the Christian presence is something that that, that H.G. Wells wants to airbrush out as far as mm. possible. And everything is progressing to a golden age in the future where science will liberate man from from superstition and religion. Mm-hmm. So this sort of progressive understanding of history mm-hmm. rooted in philosophical materialism mm-hmm. so that that was and and of course you know as with Darwin, certain aspects of darwinian evolution is understood in the 19th century this 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 was used as a as a as a, a cudgel to beat 
Christianity with and to show that you know that basically this is this is a true understanding of history and that the whole Christian thing is a, is a distraction. So almost the kind of view that gets popularized in, say, a, a show like Star Trek or something. We're in the future. We will have more technology, so therefore we will have more peace. We'll have health. We'll have medicine. And in the past, we had illness, barbarism, religion. Right? That's precisely it, yes. There okay. you see Star Trek as the product of um, an H.G. Wellsian understanding of history. Okay. So, uh, so Chesterton then read this and... What was so? How is uh, the everlasting man a response? Well, what I fi- find is wonderful. So obviously, Hilaire Belloc's a great friend of Chesterton's, mm-hmm. right? So Chesterton doesn't get, just get get together with Belloc and 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 harangue H.G. Wells. He said, "Well, how do we actually convert H.G. Wells, right? How how wow. how, how do, and his readers, yeah. right? Not, and so Belloc does it by just knocking down all the things that are wrong, in okay. factually. But what?" Cheston does is, is is set up an alternative outline of history, mm-hmm. which is basically rooted in the fact that the so it's it's in two parts, and the creature who is man, and then the second part is the uh, the uh, the religion what? that is Christ. Sorry, let's have a look at this. Good to have the book handy here. Yes. So part one is the creature called man, and then yeah. the part is on the man called Christ. Oh okay? yes. Yeah. And then the first chapter of the part, part one is the man in the cave, and the first chapter of part two is the God in the cave. Mm-hmm. And the purpose is, you know, that he's he's showing us that all of history actually points towards the coming of Christ. Uh, all of history prior to Christ points towards his coming and is fulfilled. Our understanding of the meaning of history is fulfilled in the person of Christ. Mm-hmm. And then everything since Christ, A, also points to Christ, but also he shows how Christ somehow fulfills and baptizes history, that history is fu- fulfilled and made perfect in Christ. Whereas before, there were gropings and grapplings in the dark and the twilight, uh, some good, some bad. But the point is that history was always going to be in this twilight zone okay. uh, where you, in, until or unless God reveals himself, and, and God does, obviously, in the person of Christ. So what, what Chester's doing is showing that an understanding of Christ is essential to understanding human history. And it also seems one thing that's interesting is that he, you know, almost begins by saying, okay, let's grant H.G. Wells's view of history. Let's try to imagine that everything we know is just this ongoing, aimless evolution of lesser complexity to greater complexity. Um, but nothing really different. So man is just an ongoing, evolving, and Christianity is just an ongoing, evolving. It's all this evolutionary soup, so to speak. And then what, what, I, what always struck me is he says, okay, let's try that. And he says, the more we look at, so he doesn't try to say man is not merely an animal. He says, let's try to look at man as an animal. And he says, the moment we start, we start looking at man as an animal, we realize just how odd of an animal he is. Yes. Uh, there's a, actually um, an, an atheistic primatologist. Uh, and sometimes when I teach this book, I'll sometimes show a, a lecture he gave, um, Robert Sapolsky, but he, it's on the uniqueness of humans. And fundamentally, he doesn't believe that human beings are unique, but he has to, in just doing good primatologist work, he tries to show all the similarities between humans and them. But in every way, he ends up saying, well, if human beings aren't unique, they turn out to be uniquier than all other animals and perhaps even the uniquierest. Because when you actually try to look at human beings as another animal, they just turn out to not fit in that thing. And, he, and then he does the same thing in some ways with Christianity. If, you begin with the assumption Christianity is just another religion. It's just another thing. It's just another attempt of human beings to make sense of the world. But then all of a sudden, when you look at Christianity as just another religion in the world, all of a sudden you realize it just doesn't fit. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so I think in that way, it's kind of like he, uh, it's almost like that movement in judo where you take the opponent's energy yeah. and you receive it. And that's what makes the other person fall. So he says, let's try to assume, and because uh, in a way, Wells has the easier position. He's trying to knock down the established view of human beings are distinct from animals and Christianity is distinct. Uh, so maybe if we could just kind of with that in mind, talk a little bit about the first part, right? The creature called man. How does he try to help us to see 
human beings as genuinely unique. Well, actually, again, you, you mentioned judo, jiu-jitsu, that you take the weight of the assailant uh, and mm -hmm. use that weight against them. That's exactly what he does, because in, in the first chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book, The Man in the Cave, mm -hmm. he says, well, let's be scientific about this. Let's just look at the evidence, right? Let's not take any presumptions, any prejudices. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he says, well, the people that call themselves scientific are actually the prejudiced ones. And then he yeah. talks about how do they, how do they, talk about this myst mystical person we'd ever met called the caveman. Yeah. You know, and they assume that basically he was uh, some sort of brute, some sort of beast who you know, beat his wife over the head uh, and and then when, when he got fed up with her and got himself a new wife who he then also beat over the head. Uh, and he says, what happens when we actually go in the cave? Do we see you know, uh, a, a neat pile of, of female skulls mm. all neatly cracked like eggs? Do we see that? Said, no, we don't see that. What do we actually see if you go into the cave for actual scientific empirical evidence? What you see is art. You see cave paintings. And Chesham was trained as an artist, said, and not just cave paintings, good cave paintings, the sense of movement in the animal was swinging his head round to, to look behind him. He said, this is, this is someone who had obviously seen and wondered at the beauty of nature and then wanted to render it through an act of creativity. You know, and he says art is the signature of man. Mm. You know, that we are yeah. not just creatures, we are also creators. Yes, and I, I, sometimes when I've uh, taught Everlasting Man, I've shown pictures, and you can actually do this, but they have cave paintings from all over the world. Most of them, they tend to think were came from about at least 30,000 years ago. Some of them are more recent, maybe seven or 10,000 years ago, and really all over the globe, right? yeah. all over the globe. And they're paintings. Yeah. They paint animals, they paint human beings, they paint other things. They're clearly, I mean, I don't know, they're they're like, they're these expressions. And, certain, and, and you can also, by the way, you can look at figurines in the same time period between something like 20,000 years ago to 45,000 years ago. As soon as human beings kind of exist in the world, they create figurines that are art, right? and then they paint art. Yeah. So we have right, human beings, as he puts it right, or, uh, like human beings basically paint things, whereas like, you know, animals don't. Right. Animals might build a nest, but they just keep building that nest and build that nest. And they don't really build the same nest they built, right, forever. But human beings, right, have this kind of art. It's, it's, it's his way of just, if you look at the evidence, you see what, in a way, the church would later call the Imago Dei, the image of God and man from Genesis and from the New Testament that Human beings, again, right, as you put it, are not merely created. They're not merely creatures, as are all animals, and they are that, certainly. But they're also creators. Art is the signature of man. Uh, so that's, I think, a really just, once you begin to see that, you begin to think, wow, there's something really unique there. And that's, in a way, all the tradition was ever saying uh, when you know Aristotle or others called human beings, right, a rational animal. Yes, an animal, but an animal with logos, with capacity for reason and imagination and creativity. So how does he go from there then to kind of develop this idea of kind of the uniqueness of of human beings? Well, I mean, so first of all, yeah, that art is the signature of man. So imagination, you mentioned the Imago Dei. So the imagination is the mark of the Imago yes. Dei in mm -hmm. us, that we are not merely other creatures. He also talks about laughter. You know, yes. laughter is a signature of man. Other animals don't la laugh. I mean, mm -hmm. what, what, what's necessary for this? First of all, for, for laughter, you know, we have to have a, a, a connection to reason. Mm -hmm. And then we have to see the absurdity of, of reason when it's when it's breached, mm -hmm. right? And, and then we respond to that with something which you call laughter. So that, that what he's trying to show is that, that man is not another animal animal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we had the development of religion as part of man's search for meaning, mm -hmm. right? And also search for beauty. And the, 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 again, this is this triune splendor of the, the good, the true, and the beautiful, right? So so the understanding of virtue, the understanding of, of moral goodness or love, the understanding of truth, logos, reason, yeah. and and then also this, this, this seeing of the beauty in, in things, uh, and also the wanting to do the beauty 
in things, right? Mm-hmm. So not just to see uh, the beauty of a sunset, but wanted to recreate the beauty of the sunset. Oh. Seeing the beauty of a, I mean, we have it. I have in my office uh, a cave painting of a rhinoceros, yeah. and ironically and paradoxically, it's there as a as a reminder to me when I walk into my office of the everlasting man. Yes. Right? The art as the signature mm-hmm. of man. This is not just a rhinoceros. Yeah. This is man's depiction mm-hmm. of the rhinoceros. Yeah. So maybe then think seeing how that if that were if that's present in the earliest, then as society develops civilizations develop, you you have a con- ongoing development of art and imagination and reason, right? From And and I think even, I remember uh, reading something like even in National Geographic or something where it was showing that often early societies, the more, every time you see an early society, like evidence from an early civilization, there, there's always some kind of temple, some kind of center of worship. It's not so much that we became civilized and then invented religion to try to control society. It's that we were religious and then formed societies around something, right? And so you have that idea that human beings continuing to be artful uh, and develop and express these views about themselves and the world and the source of the world in these great stories, in great myths, in great architecture. Yeah, the the idea that there is a transcendental reality, right? Mm-hmm. A supernatural reality yeah. is something which is, is far back as you know. And the other thing is, the important part of this book we need to remember yeah. is that Cheston basically says, you know, the thing about prehistory is not that it doesn't exist, it's that we, we don't know it. So mm-hmm. for instance, do we know that cavemen lived in caves? No. If they, if, if they lived in wooden houses, the wooden houses would long ago have perished. The mm-hmm. only thing left is the cave. Perhaps the cave was the art gallery. You know, we sure. don't we don't know. Yeah. So he said, but what we do know is the oldest civilizations that we know about are civilizations, mm-hmm. right? Which means that they've been around for a long while. You know, as far back as we go with the history we've got, we're talking about, about uh, civilizations that are already in the process of possibly of decay. And so actually... Tolkien takes this up. Uh, you know, yeah. There's a connection between Tolkien and Chess. Chess was a huge influence on Tolkien. So, you know, in Tolkien's imaginative world, Middle Earth, right? Yes. It's taken place so long ago, but there's not nothing. There's just things we've forgotten about. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole idea that if, if, if humanity's been on the planet, let's say for 500,000 years, yeah. and we only know about the last 30 or 40,000 years, well, there's, you know, there's whatever the mathematics is there, 450,000 years mm-hmm. where we don't know what was happening because mm-hmm. time has has removed the evidence, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't mean that it wasn't also, possibly, perhaps, please God, part of the beatific vision is yeah. being able to see the story of man in its fullness yeah. and not in a fragmented, broken sense which mm-hmm. we see it. But Cheston's insisting, no, that that, that Wells' outline of history and an atheistic outline of history is based upon an ignorance of the full picture. Mm-hmm. And then um, not only ignorance, but an assumption yes. that it's developing in a linear way. So it's 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 getting better over time. It's getting more civilized. And in a way, we don't have any reason to uh, suppose that it hasn't been civilized in a way since human beings right existed. Right. They've been talking and they've been doing other things. And we certainly have certain monuments and these sorts there's, of there's elements. Assumption, so. There's also the other assumption, I think, is that pieces of the jigsaw puzzle which are missing don't exist. Mm-hmm. In other words, that, that, that this scientific understanding of history based upon the, the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle we have mm-hmm. and trying to, trying to de- make a whole picture from the pieces, when actual fact the yeah. missing pieces are as important yeah. Yeah. as the pieces we can actually see. And you have to accept the absence of evidence as part of the overall picture. Sure, Otherwise, yeah. you're, you're, you're trying to construct yeah. something based upon an, an inadequate and incomplete understanding of yeah. things. And I think what Chesterton suggests, if I hear you correctly, is the idea that each of the jigsaw pieces that we have always bears a definitive, unique stamp of being human. Precisely. It's always aspect of art, creativity, figurines, paintings, temples, worship, worship, uh, like, you know, big stones that get moved around for purposes. We may not understand what they were for, but they were clearly... I mean, they, they, they weren't merely to get food. I, I don't, you know what I mean? They were somehow like human beings were doing something very unique. And so it's not the idea of looking back and saying, we don't really know, therefore we don't know. It's saying, since we don't really know exactly the linear process, then the Wellsian story is actually just 
it, there's no evidence for it. It's an imaginative portrayal of the progress we wish happened. But when we look, we notice that, again, human beings always bear this unique stamp. And in some ways, this is right the common sense view that human beings are unique, that our language, our logos, right? The mere fact that we sit around and wonder how we are different and whether or not we are different from other animals, but it's unlikely, right? Whether or not other animals sit around and try to figure out whether or not like they are different from us. So one thing I wanted just to kind of, so I think a lot of people, when they, when they try to look at kind of the uniqueness of human beings, they go immediately to morality, right? And they want to go immediately to the moral law. And it, it seems to me that what Chesterton is doing here is he ultimately is getting to that. Our capacity to have art, to have wonder, to laugh, right, is all eventually a sign that we fundamentally are moral and responsible beings before something greater than ourselves. Right. But could you say a little bit about, like, one, how does he eventually get to this understanding? And secondly, Maybe what's the wisdom in, in the fact that he doesn't begin with morality, but he begins with cave paintings? Well, yeah, because he wants to show, I mean, right at the beginning of the of, of the book, he, he begins with a, a, a philosophical statement that basically that uh, even the philosophers distinguish three things that they everyone accepts is a mystery that we don't know the answer to. The origin of the universe, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, how nothing becomes something, right? Yeah. We don't know how that happened. Mm-hmm. And then how this inanimate, something became life mm-hmm. that somehow life whatever that is which is a mystery enters the cosmos and then this thing called man mm-hmm. that can actually think about life and what life is and can think about beauty can think about goodness and truth how he came in and then of course that the, then the focus is okay well we, we we have to embrace three mysteries even if we're atheists because mm-hmm. we don't know the answer yeah. and i'm going to concentrate history is about man so we're not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to discuss, mm-hmm. you know, the origin of the universe or the origin of life. I'm going to talk about, you know, man. Who is man, and how is he present uh, throughout history? And that's so mm-hmm. that, that's his, that's his starting point. And the other thing I like about him, he, he, there's a wonderful part in the book where he talks about you know, the wisdom of the elders, how how ancient societies gave a lot of reverence and respect to the elders mm-hmm. on the assumption that they, they gained wisdom right mm-hmm. through experience. And he talks about, you know, that this is a much healthier, and that's when he talks about tradition mm-hmm. uh, and what have you, as he does in orthodoxy about you know, the democracy of the dead, that being willing to listen, mm-hmm. you know, to the experience of, of your elders, and first of yeah. all, the living elders, but also the, the heritage, right, of centuries. But he says that compared to modernity, whereas, you know, they used to worship the old man, mm-hmm. right? Modernity worships the strong man. Right, and bear in mind mm-hmm. that Chess is writing this in the 1920s. Uh, we have Lenin and Stalin. We have Mussolini. Yeah. We have the rise of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And this all derives from philosophies such as Nietzsche with you know, the Ubermensch, the Superman. So this worship of the strong man, he says, is this, is this progress to worship the strong man mm-hmm. no, over the old man, over the elder? You know, and, and what's more barbaric? You know, and, and and then he talks about well, let's go back as far as we can as regards the literature of the West. He talks about Homer, mm-hmm. and he says that all the sympathy in, in in the Iliad is for not for the strong man, you know, not for Achilles. You know, it's for the underdog. It's for Hector. Yeah. You know, and, mm-hmm. and and Hector's the hero, right? Not the strong mm-hmm. man, right? Mm-hmm. But the virtuous, the man who's the man who's defending his family and his people yes, yeah. and for for something which is not his fault. He didn't elope with Helen. It's his brother's fault. It's his brother's yeah, fault. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's willing to die, and he kind of becomes the hero. And Achilles is somewhat right. Achilles' heel is not Achilles' heel. Achilles' heel turns out, according to the Iliad, to be his wrath, exactly his anger, exactly. Um, and is, so it's a, a great story pride. Yeah. about like about the dangers of prideful anger. And and what happens when we give into that? Yep, exactly. Um, and you're right. And so it's you're right. The the kind of wisdom of these ancient tales, as opposed to merely uh, right, you know, the stronger, the newer, the better. Yeah. So um, where, so where, yeah. so where is the where is the timeless wisdom to be found in the oldest work of Western literature, basically the Iliad? 
uh, or in the ideas of Mussolini and and Karl Marx and the mm-hmm. and, and Nietzsche and the worship of the of the strong man. And who's yeah. the more barbaric? I mean, mm-hmm. is, is is Hitler uh, civilized or is Hitler the barbarian? And Hitler yeah. is the product mm-hmm. of Enlightenment philosophies. Yes, yes, and, and, and with that idea of um, the outline of history, then. In a certain sense, the, the the narrative of progress at first, we're so used to it, it seems um, probably, I mean, I think a lot of people just think it's true, and then it seems somehow fitting. But if we're constantly progressing, then that means we're at the pinnacle of history. So we get to kind of pridefully reject all of the wisdom of our elders. Yes. But we do it knowing that the next generation will reject all of us. Right. So we also, it, it does create a kind of right destabilizing force within society. And I think uh, Chesterton is able to say that it, right, it actually then means that human beings, we're, we're, not really, we're not really part of one family or even almost one race because over time we're becoming more evolved so we can have disdain towards the past uh, but that also then puts us in a perennial adolescence. We never really get to grow up. Right. Well, you think about that, and, and, and you know, something which was not as, only on Cheston's radar philosophically, but not scientifically, things like transhumanism, right? Sure, uh, and, yeah. and philosophically, people who believe in transhumanism have never grown up. Right, yeah. they don't want they don't want to embrace the cross. They don't want to understand the wisdom they got through suffering. What they want is to worship a perfect future. And there's a real irony here, of course, yeah. is that you know if you believe in God, you can see the future is being present to God. So the future exists. Yeah. Right. If you believe in God, if you don't believe in God, the future doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Right. So to worship the future, right, is to worship a God that doesn't exist. But you're doing it because you're projecting onto the yeah, future. Yeah. And Cheston talks about this, I think, in The Everlasting Man. He said that the, the, the future is, is enticing because the future is something we imagine. Mm-hmm. So it can be a blank wall yeah. on which we can write whatever we like. Yeah. So when we worship right? the future, in a way, we're worshiping ourselves, exactly. our own, own projections of our egos. Exactly. Uh, so let's, uh, let's take a break. And then when we come back, I want to look at the second part of The Everlasting Man, right? Uh, the Man Called Christ. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at AveMaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support, and now let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back. Now, we uh, talked about Chesterton's Everlasting Man as really having two major parts in responding to Wells's outline of history, uh, in which everything is just kind of an amorphous evolutionary progression. Chesterton says that the more you, we look at human beings as merely another animal, the less like another animal they appear. And then he also says that the more we look at Christianity as just another religion or just another myth or philosophy, the less like another myth or philosophy it appears. So can you tell us a little bit about right, the second part um, right, of when he calls it the man called Christ? And it begins with this beautiful line, you know, God in the cave. As he yeah. began the other one, man in the cave. I think if I, I can't do better than Chesterton, so if you permit me to read. Please, so please. Right, at, right at the beginning um, of the second part of the book, uh, the, 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 the chapter, The God in the Cave, said, the second half of human history, which was like a new creation of the world, also begins in a cave. And then we skip a few lines. God also was a caveman and had also traced strange shapes of creatures curiously coloured upon the wall of the world but the pictures that he made had come to life uh, again that that's the divinity of christ born in bethlehem in a cave mm-hmm. as being at the center of the cosmos center of time center of space center of creativity center of creation the answers the question uh, the two other questions that, that, that the philosophical mysteries that chester enunciates at the beginning right that he, everybody agrees 
all philosophers, atheists and mm. otherwise, there's a mystery about the, the the creation of the cosmos. There's a mystery about the creation of life, mm-hmm. and there's a mystery about the creation of man. Right, yeah. and here we have God who becomes a man, mm-hmm. who also created the cosmos and brought it to life. Mm-hmm. This person is the meaning of history because he's the creator of history. Yeah, uh, and I, I love the way that when Chesterton introduces Bethlehem. And it goes back to uh, right the story of Christmas and Bethlehem. He looks at three, maybe I mean three major characters in the story. Of course, the primary character right is Jesus Christ and uh, and and Mary and Joseph, right? You know, God and, and and this this whole thing. But then he looks at the three people who encounter him, right? First, the shepherds who represent in a way right the myth makers, the followers of myth, the followers that God might dwell somewhere in particular. Uh, Then he looks at the magi, the wise men who become the philosophers who are trying to reason and study to try to find ultimate meaning and purpose. And then, of course, he mentions Herod, right? That basically the enemy who doesn't come to uh, with the wonder of the uh, shepherds, or the kind of the the worship or appreciation of the magi, but with the right hatred of the enemy, Herod, who comes and tries to right slaughter one and does actually ex- order the execution of um right of, of of the holy innocents. So what? How does this, in a way, help us to understand how unique Christ and Christianity is? Yeah, I mean, this is Chesterton at his best because what 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 Chesterton is doing there is encompassing the three aspects of who we are as human beings in relation to Christ. Uh, Homo viator, right? The man on the journey. Yes. Now, if you were on a journey, then our lives are are a story, a quest, a pilgrimage, right? Yes. All of the all of these things that stories are made of, right? You, again, I go back to Tolkien. I mean, the, yes. the the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings. It's a quest, right? You have to go yes. out on a journey. You have mm-hmm. to face the perils. So that's Homo viator. They're the shepherds, right? They're, Yes. The myth makers, the storytellers, the one, those who understand reality in terms of story. Then you have the Magi, Anthropos, right? He who, according to Plato, at least etymologically, he who turns up in wonder, right? Looks up at the stars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the philosophers. So this is reason. So Anthropos and Homo viator. But then the other aspect of who we are is Homo superbus proud man the man who refuses mm-hmm. to be homo viator the man who refuses to look up because he's too busy looking at himself right and and this is the enemy throughout history so if it's like the good the bad and the beautiful right and that this is mm-hmm. who we are yes uh, and and this is how we respond in our very different various facets to the coming of christ and in a simple way by telling that very story by recording in a way the facts of history we begin to see something strange Christianity doesn't appear as another myth or as another philosophy, but it appears as the reality for which the myth makers were were seeking. Yes. The the truth that the philosophers were seeking and the good that we all resent. Right? And so you kind of see then here Christianity is actually uh, I think uh, Fulton Sheen uh, in a different way, but he he summarizes so well when he looked at Christmas on a homily, he said that all other religions and uh, philosophies are basically uh, man's search for God. Yeah. And in that way, they contain many truths, right? Right. Many partial truths, uh, either in terms of great myths or great philosophies, right? And But in Christianity, there's something different. It's not man's search for God. It's God's search for man. Yeah. And I think Chesterton's able just to, by ne- looking at the story, you realize how unique Christ is from his birth. And and uh, what his uniqueness does mm-hmm. to the history that he enters. So again, we we talk about the theologians will tell you that the, the Christ, the gospel, fulfills the covenant. You know, the, it, make, it completes the Old Testament, brings the Old Testament into completion and yes. into fulfillment. Yes, um, we see how how Augustine baptizes Plato. We see how mm-hmm. Aquinas baptizes Aristotle. Christ baptizes the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. but Christ also baptizes the Iliad and the Odyssey mm-hmm. uh, and the Aeneid. He baptizes myth because he, the story is also fulfilled in him, yeah. right? So everything is brought to gloriously baptized fruition in the coming of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. 
Yeah. In this book, he describes, uh, Chesterton describes the creed as a key, right? And I think often in his age and in our age, we think of the creed as something that constricts. Right. Uh, and he describes it as a key uh, in part because he says, right, it has a def definite shape, right? A, a key that is um, shapeless won't work. Um, he says, in some ways, the shape is arbitrary. It could have been different. And, 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 and thirdly, he says, the key opens a door, Yeah. right? And, and all it matters is if we think we're in a prison, then to discover a key that opens the door to get out is pretty exciting. Yeah. Uh, so could you say a little bit more about Chesterton's understanding of the creed as a key? Yeah, well, I, first of all, this was very important on my own path, this, mm -hmm. this particular passage from The Everlasting Man, because the understanding that the complexity of the well, the Apostles' Creed at first and then the Nicene yeah. other, uh, subsequent creeds, and they become more complex, right? Mm -hmm. They become more complex because they have to uh, unlock problems, right? So I think Chesterton says that a stick will fit any hole, right? So, so, so simplicity is, <laughs> mm -hmm. is not a good thing, but only a key, a, a specific key fits the specific lock. And the creed is the key that unlocks reality. And now, when, mm -hmm. I, when I saw that, mm -hmm. now, all of a sudden, the complexity of, of the Christian creed, of Catholic dogma, of mm -hmm. the catechism, mm -hmm. uh, all began to make complete sense. Of course, you have to have uh, a dogmatic theology because the dogmatic theology is the key that unlocks reality. And he, I think he yes. a wonderful thing here where he, in the Everlasting Man, somewhere, he talks about how moderns distinguish between the sort of the God of the theologians uh, and the God of love, right? And, he, and it's sort of disdaining the Trinity as being too mystical. And mm -hmm. uh, and he said, well, you know, they don't understand it's the same thing. Because yeah. if God has had existed in eternity and he's not a Trinity, you know, before he created anything, who did he love? Mm -hmm. Right, it's brilliant. I mean, how can God be love mm -hmm. if, until He creates something, He had nothing to love? Clearly, mm -hmm. whatever love is, the giving, self-giving to, to to another, had to be present in the Godhead itself. You know, so this is Chesterton again at this brilliant best yeah. unpacking things that can be very complex and complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think even First John four that has that great, you know, it sounds like you know God is love, says basically this was revealed to us. In Jesus Christ, because God loved us first. Right. So this idea that we fully discover God's love when we see God loving us in Jesus Christ, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, right, that all who should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we not only see God's love for us in Jesus Christ, but we see God's love for the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit. So we, you know, and, and, and in a way then, the idea that you can't have God as love, and you don't have God as love, apart from the revelation beginning with Israel and then fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right? The pagan, from a pagan point of view, you can't see the world and get to a loving, caring God. No. A God that loves me. Yeah. Right? And, and yet now it's like we've kind of having gone up the scaffolding of Christianity to discover a God who loves me, in a way, the modern world wants to get rid of the scaffolding, right? And wants to get rid of, um, you know, wants to get rid of Christianity, but still maintain some idea that uh, there's a God in the sky that cares about me. But, um, but, but irrespective of what I do, yes, uh, so yes. Creating again, falling back on creating God in our own image. If you, if we won't be the Imago Dei, we create God in our own image. And that's mm -hmm. why love becomes feeling and and not ratio. Because you know, again, yes. the Christian understanding of love is that you have to freely choose to lay down yourself for the beloved, as Christ uh, freely mm -hmm. chose to lay down his life for us. Yeah. Right. So uh, without that, then you, you, there's only two two ways of doing things. Right. Because yeah. right back, you mentioned Cain. Uh, mm -hmm. I think in, in our previous. Uh, podcast, you know, that either we sacrifice ourselves for others or mm. we sacrifice others for the self. You know, they're, they're the only two choices. Mm. One's the choice of pride, the other's the choice of humility, which manifests mm. itself in love. And Jesus Christ shows us that, and Chesterton, the everlasting man, shows us that. And, and I think Chesterton begins to unpack this in really a beautiful way as he moves forward with who Christ is. And, and maybe you can comment on a couple of different themes that you find particularly helpful. Uh, two that strike me are one where he talks about the riddles of the gospel. And there's this idea that Jesus is simple and nice and the church is mean and harsh. Uh, but he actually seems to say the opposite. And he says, actually, Jesus's words are kind of harsh and confusing. 
And it's the church that kind of softens them so that we can understand them as the whole they were meant to be. Yeah, I mean, again, what he's what he's intent on doing there is to is to debunk mm-hmm. the humanistic Christ. Christ is merely the good man. Okay, right, a good man as we understand. It's, no, actually, you know, the riddles of the gospel are actually Christ has lots of things that force you to sit up and take notice, and mm-hmm. actually, I might be a slap in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, and of course, the the the, the church doesn't uh, obviously. Uh, negate anything Christ says, but the church is the mystical body of Jesus Christ. Christ hasn't left, right? Yeah. So the church does have the authority to explicate. Mm-hmm. So basically, as time goes on, we we can unpack the mm-hmm. gospel because we are living as a as the mystical body of Jesus Christ with the magisterium, with the, the authority yeah. that Christ has bequeathed mm-hmm. us. Yeah, because if we were otherwise just take a line. Right. Occasionally here or there out of what, what Jesus says, you know, right. It, it, it could be very disarming and in some ways, right. Christ, I think it was Dorothy Day who said, right. Christ came to uh, comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And so, right. He says both. Right? Yes. He'll say like, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you, scribes. And then at the same time, say, come to me, all you who are, com- uh, you know, burdened and, and heavy laden. Then, then other thing that uh, he does, I think that's really is when he looks at kind of what Christ does, he begins to say, right, it's the strangest story of all, I believe. And what what he seems to be suggesting here is that, again, there's something wrong with the world. I, I love it one time. I think there was an essay contest or something you might be able to, or like an essay theme where he was asked to talk about, you know, what's wrong with civilization. And everybody was supposed to talk about what was wrong with civilization. And I think he said that he always assumed that, right, as a Christian, uh, the obvious answer to that was that I am what's right. wrong with civilization. Yes. Um, and that discovery that there's something wrong with me, that I am, it's good that I exist, and somehow the way I exist right now is not in harmony. Yep. And so he talks about this idea that Jesus is the weirdest teacher of all. It's the strangest story because he doesn't come fundamentally to teach, he doesn't come fundamentally to do anything other than, in a way, he comes to die. Yeah, he doesn't so, come as the strong man. Yes, right? he doesn't come yes. as the Messiah of the Jews. He doesn't come as 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 the the, the deliverance of uh, an Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. No, he comes, you say, to lay down his life self sacrificially mm-hmm. for uh, as the innocent victim. You know, in some sense, that again, it's the fulfillment of stories such as as, as Hector in the Iliad. It makes yeah. sense of them. As, mm-hmm. So that's why, again, Tolkien, profoundly influenced by Chesterton, as I've said, um, you know, he said that the gospel contains all of the truths of all the myths. He said the only difference is it's the true myth. Mm-hmm. It's the story, the the, the the myth that really happened, right? Yeah. Is that this the, you know, everything we were grappling for in our philosophy, in our storytelling, mm-hmm. is fulfilled in the life, teaching, death, and resurrection yes. of Jesus Christ. It's the fulfillment of it all. It makes sense of it all. We see it through that. But what you said earlier as well, I want to just comment on that, yeah, is please. you know, that it is a great danger, and this is the problem with Sola Scriptura and, and the multi-faceted dimension of Protestantism now, is, is that you can take any line out of context and it will mean whatever you want it to mean that you have mm-hmm. to understand the gospel in its integrity and its entirety and understand every line within the context of every other line within within the gospel so if you mm-hmm. otherwise if you just pluck out i come to bring a sword then christ is a militarist right i mean mm-hmm. you know you can you can take one line out and it means not just nothing it means something diabolical unless mm-hmm. you see it within the context yeah. of the whole that's mm-hmm. why the teaching authority of the magisterium of the church is so important mm-hmm. because christ assures us that he hasn't left us, he hasn't gone yeah, away. Yeah. I don't you leave know. you as orphans. Exactly. Yeah. You know that we know that you know what's bound on earth is bound in heaven because he's promised mm-hmm. us that. And the church has the authority to make sense of the gospel. In other words, Christ has told us the true story. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, the true story is still being told. Mm-hmm. In other words, that the, the incarnation continues in the church. And the other thing, we, again, just get bigger and bigger. That this is that this is just the church militant. The church triumphant's part of the story. It's part of the story we don't really understand yet. And to bring C.S. Lewis in, if we, if we may, all these people yeah. are connected. Some of the most profound theology I've ever read, because I'm a literature person, I'm not a theologian. Yeah. Uh, in the, in the final final pages of the last battle, when when Lewis says that uh, the whole of this life. So the whole of human history, the whole of the, the, everything we've been talking about here, the whole of human history is like the cover and the title page. 
the real story has not begun yet. Yeah. That when we when we leave this story, mm-hmm. his story, right, which is his story, and move into the church triumphant, God willing, he then then Lewis says that the real story hasn't begun yet. The rest is like a, a story where every every chapter is better than the one before, and it goes on forever. Uh, that's yeah. I really can't say anything better than that. That's just a beautiful and. Yeah, and, and I think this idea that the, you know, if we say the word, oh, the creed is a myth, that seems dismissive. But if we say the creed is a story and we think about what is the creed and we think about the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So, well, I'm saying something, I'm saying truths that are doctrines, but I'm also beginning to tell a story. So this God who is Father and Almighty he made, he did something. He made heaven and earth. And then I'm going to tell a story. Then what happened about his son? Well, his son, whom I believe in, who is equally God, well, he was born of the Virgin Mary, became man, right? You know, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died. Wait a second. The God becomes man and suffers and dies, right? This is at the heart of the gospel proclamation that you see in Acts, you see throughout the letters of Paul. Um, and, but he will come to judge the living and the dead. And, and one thing I've always been attracted to is this idea that when God judges, he restores to those who have lost everything, right, what they are now freely given. So God the judge isn't there merely to punish us, but he's there actually to, when you've been, if you've had something stolen from you, you want it back. Right. So you go to the judge and you say, give me back what, has, what I've lost. And what does God give back to us? He gives back to us our sonship, which wasn't only stolen from us, but we sold right right, for a bowl of porridge. So this understanding, so he will come to judge, he will come to restore to us all that has been lost. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? Okay, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. I believe in that, the love of the Father and Son. But what has the Holy Spirit done? Well, the Holy Spirit has right, you know, animates the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. So we have then the whole notion of the church and the sacrament. So, right, and I think it's this false modern separation between stories and truths. Right. Uh, and we realize actually you know, stories tell the most important truths, yes. kind of our true identities. And and the last words yeah, of the yeah. creed, because you you, you, <laughs> you left out the happy ending, yes. right? And life everlasting, mm-hmm. right? That, that all, all of it points yeah. to life everlasting, mm-hmm. uh, the, hap- the, the happy ever after of yeah. all good stories. Mm-hmm. And, and you were quite right to, to, to emphasize that we need to understand that when Chesterton talks about myth, mm-hmm. or Tolkien talks about myth, or Lewis talks about myth. Myth means story, not lie. Yes. I, mean, I mean, you have to. It's very important because the modern world, you know, yes. a myth is something which is untrue. Yes. A story is untrue. No, yeah. no, a, a story can be untrue. Anything mm-hmm. human can mm-hmm. be distorted. Yeah. That's why the true myth, the true yeah. story, is the gospel, which cannot mm-hmm. be distorted by us. I mean, we can misunderstand it to, to our own destruction. But the, tr- the story itself is true, irrespective yes. of what we do yes, to yeah. it. And I think it really gives a profound, and I think it's one of the things that Chesterton helps us to do, is you look at the church with wonder and beauty because you see the story and the reality that the church is unfolding. So in a certain sense, that allows us to kind of like, the church in like is almost transparent is a transparent vehicle or instrument through which I see Jesus Christ and what God is doing for me. And that allows him then to kind of, in a certain sense, you don't notice the individual things that churchmen happen to do, right. which may or may not be wise or may or may not be prudent. You know, um, you don't have to agree with the church's policy on COVID or the, whether or not they give you a ticket for parking on the grass. You know what I mean? It's like you just, it, and I think he's able to do that. So it's kind of a strange way in which he's defending the church by helping us to see that the church is really, right, the mystical body of Christ, the the temple of the Holy Spirit through which we begin to discover God and his plan for us. In fact, he talks about the paradox at the end there yes. about the human dimension of the church, right? So we have the mystical body of Christ, that, that which is basically Christ's presence in not just on earth, but in purgatory and in heaven, right? But we also know that the church itself is within history a weak, fallible human institution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the book ends with you know, the five deaths of the of the faith, right? That many times in history you think, well, that's it, the Catholic Church is dead, mm-hmm. finished. And every single time it's risen again from the dead. So there's something divine in the story of the church 
yeah. the, the several yeah. times she's died, either, either through corruption from within or persecution from without, and every time she rises again from the dead, she's like her master. Wow, that's really beautiful. Um, maybe you know, before we close, I wanted just to ask you one uh, final question. You had mentioned to me earlier that not only was Chesterton important for Lewis's conversion, but uh, Joy Davidman, whom he eventually married, uh, was also right profoundly impacted by Wells and Chesterton. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is sort of like a happy ending, or at least a happy way of ending the conversation about the everlasting man. Because uh, Joy Davidman, when she was a teenage Jewish girl in, in the United States, read H.G. Wells's uh, The Outline of History and became mm-hmm. an atheist as a direct consequence of reading uh, Wells's Outline of History. Now, so that shows the damaging impact that that book had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then, of course, uh, Lewis becomes a Christian through reading Chester's The Everlasting Man, which is Chester's response and answer, a repost to the Outline of History by Wells. Then Joy Davidman reads C.S. Lewis after C.S. Lewis has become a Catholic, uh, sorry, become a Christian due to his reading, at least in large part, of The Everlasting Man, because Lewis, as, as we said at the beginning, so I saw the Christian outline of history laid out before me in a way that made sense. So this was this was converted Lewis. And then Lewis, of course, Joy Davidman reads Lewis, and Joy Davidman becomes a Christian. Mm-hmm. So indirectly, uh, okay. uh, you know, Chesterton, through writing The Everlasting Man, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. via, vicariously, wow. C.S. Lewis, brings Joy Davidman back from the atheism mm-hmm. that Wells had seduced her towards yeah. back or to the fullness of Christian faith. Yeah, and, you know, and and it is kind of, of course, you know, Lewis's biography that he wrote before he met Joy Davidman was um, Surprised by Joy. Yes. And uh, and then eventually he, he marries a woman named Joy, and she discovered Joy. And so I think sometimes when we when we think about Chesterton, one thing I at least want to maybe take away, and I want to just, you, you can, you know, uh, add to this if you wish, but there's a way when I read Chesterton, I somehow feel, I don't know how to put it, I always feel inspired. I feel like Chesterton has this deep sense of wonder and joy, both at the created world and at the joy of the gospel. Like his work really is, he kind of seems to be like, you know, he's an apostle of joy, an apostle of gratitude, right? He says, we ought to say thank, like the fact that I exist, I ought to say thank you. And I find that when I read him, I feel somehow like, like I want to become more joyful, more grateful and that's a really unique uh, thing. And I think in a way, it's partly one of the reasons why I think his writing is effective. He's very good at exposing uh, like fallacies or erroneous positions, but he does it from a, uh, a point of mirth, joy, yes. laughter, and yes. thanksgiving. Amen. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on our show. And again, with a book we were talking about today was G.K. Chesterton's Everlasting Man. Uh, we do have an earlier podcast that we where we looked at Chesterton and conversion. Uh, so if you find this topic interesting, um, you, you may wish to consider that. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on the Catholic Theology Show.